morning. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Rick. I'm the lead pastor here. A couple things before we jump into our scripture for this morning. So um, if you've got a Bible, you can start turning there to the book of Galatians. Uh, Deanne could not have set me up better for what I'm about to talk about. Um, if you're a parent, you know, you've noticed that our children's ministries, Kids Connection and, and things of that nature have kind of had a hiatus for a few weeks and we're coming back into it. Some of that is a, is a little bit of a reset. Some of that is, is um, trying to kind of, you know, with something that happens every week, sometimes it's hard to get, to catch your breath and go, okay, we need to, we need to reset. And, um, and there are a few things that, that we've been needing to reset. And so next week, you're going to hear from our interim children's director, um, who's a lovely woman. Uh, <laughs> and godly and precious and and as, as close to Jesus as you're going to get. Um, it's my wife. And, uh, but uh, what, one of the things that I wanted to do is I, I wanted to just kind of, as she's going to come up and next week and kind of lay out for you some, some measure of, kind of, I hope to recast some of how we think about children's ministry. I just want to, I want to begin that a little bit by just noting something. Uh, it is, it is uh, such a temptation for us that when we think about ministering to our kids, especially if you're like me, and you're like, I should not be put with children. It's, it's a bad thing. Like, I will, I will do harm in some measure. Not physically, but I just will say something stupid because I'm just not great with kids. God gave me four. It's weird. Uh, but um, we're tempted to think it's like child care. And I hope I hope Deanne's story kind of disabused us of that. Even when we think it's that, it's not. Even when we think, like, oh, I'm just holding babies in the nursery. Yeah, you are. And do you realize that that baby that you're holding, that you're hopefully, you know, praying for and spending time with, uh, could be standing up here doing what I'm doing for 30 years, 20 years? Who knows? Could, do, you, do you see that like something as small as praying with a child who's, who's in pain could come back and do this life-transforming thing that you're like, I, what's the big deal? I mean, I didn't know what else to do, and so I just prayed with them. I, 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 I didn't know what to do. Of course you didn't, because you don't know how God is going to use these things. And so um, I would invite you, um, if, if, you know, whether you're watching at home, and even if you're not, if for some reason you're not going to be here, that's fine. I would invite you to just grab the YouTube video and just watch that little section. Maybe uh, give, give yourself a little bit of a, uh, maybe a reorientation to what it is to, to minister to our kids. Second thing I wanted to say is I would ask for you to pray for our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, this next week, um, starting from Tuesday to Thursday, is our annual General Assembly. And that is a time in which all of uh, teaching elders, pastors like me, and ruling elders um, travel someplace and have this big conference convention, which, um, oh, it's just, it's just stimulating and exciting and awesome, and, and everyone just is like climbing over themselves to go, and we have, we're just such loving people to one another and have such caring conversations. Um, we can. We can also be jerks to each other because we're all sinners, right? Um, and believe it or not, the PCA, for as much as you think like okay, but I'm in a Presbyterian church that's reformed and evangelical, believes all these things. We're a pretty broad tent. There's very vast differences. Hey, there's vast differences just in this city in PCA churches, better yet, in the country. 
And um, so I would ask that you would pray that this week would be boring. That's what I would ask. Obviously, we want the Lord to protect his church, and there's a lot of things that are going on in our culture today that we're going to be reckoning with and dealing with. Um, But I would just ask that it would be boring um, because that would be awesome. That, that, would, that would show that the Lord is, is um, giving, us, giving us some measure of peace. So uh, please just be praying for that. Um, I want to thank, though we, uh, she probably won't watch, but uh, Hardy came out last week to, to uh, fill in for me, and I was very thankful for that. Um, it, and if you've been here, you know that we've kind of hit a little bit of a turn in our, in our time in Galatians because Paul has been, this, this early Christian leader named Paul who wrote this letter, he has been talking to these churches and he's been focusing a lot on who they are and, and how, um, how the work of Jesus is life, death, and resurrection, how it kind of transforms who we are apart from what we do, okay? But then he, he hit a turn in which now it's like, okay, so now that we've dealt with that, and we've, we've heard like, okay, so I am accepted by God, not based on what I do, but by Jesus and by him alone. So all of the things that I've done bad, like God, Jesus is, has dealt with those in, in his crucifixion and, and his, like, uh, like Steve was saying for us, his righteousness, his, his perfect record is true of me now because of my union with him. If that's the case, if God doesn't weigh my deeds in this grand cosmic scale, then does anything that I do matter? Putting this another way, since salvation, there's a christian term, but since being reconciled to God, we'll put it that way, is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, then does that mean that now I can do whatever I want? Now, mostly that's because most of us define freedom as this complete unfettered autonomy. But hopefully what we saw, if you were here last week, is that we are freed from ourselves, but we are freed for something else. We're freed for loving service. But how do we do that? Because we can, we can all come up with a definition of that, right? What, well, loving service for me looks like this, or it doesn't look like this, or blah, blah, blah. Well, the good news is, is that Paul's not going to leave us to guess. This week and next week, he's going to deal with, okay, this week, what have we been freed from? Next week, specifically, what have we been freed for? And today, Paul shows us that what we've been freed from is this thing called the flesh. So if you'd stand in honor of God's word, we're in Galatians 5, verses 16 to 21. This is God's word to us. But I say, walk by the Spirit And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. The desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. To keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Believe it or not, that is for our flourishing. God has given it to us. It is totally true. Would you pray with me? No matter what we brought in this room this morning, Jesus, we ask that you'd meet with us. Help us to know you, to walk with you, to be changed by you. Some of, for some of us, our, our defensive already gone up. It went up after about three words of that passage. 
And I, I just pray that you would, by your grace, would you tear those bricks down. Tear those bricks down to show us something different than what we anticipate. And show us a compassionate God, not the taskmaster that we believe you are. Help us in that. We cannot do this on our own. You have to open our eyes. And so we ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. That's a fun passage, huh? There is nothing like hearing a list of bad behaviors that if you are um, a child of the 80s, or at least for uh, some of you are too young, you can go YouTube it later, but sound like they should come out of the church lady's mouth. Um, Dana Carvey's skit from Saturday Night Live. Uh, it sounds like this is the kind of thing that he would have said then. And, and a lot of it has to do with the fact that we come back and forth with this word flesh. Some of us have terrible connotations. I mean, we don't even use that word. I mean, we use it like we, we either think in Christian circles, we either think flesh has to do with sexuality or we think it has to do with the food of zombies. Like those are the only things we think about when it comes to flesh. So what is this thing and what is Paul talking about? Right? What we need to understand is that when Paul is talking about being freed from something and for something else, he is talking about change. Change. And if, if you heard nothing else last week, or I would hope that you would have heard that change in the Christian life is expected. Which seems weird because we've been talking about grace and we're talking about, which is all true, and yet... Here's this tension of change. The free grace of God is not a license to do whatever we want. Because what we end up thinking is that the grace of God in Jesus is like a get-out-of-hell-free card. We turn it into the gates, and we're good. But what God is not interested in is a purely legal transaction. The scripture as a whole gives us a story that what God wants is a relationship, and that relationship being reconciled is not simply transactional. It's relational. Change will happen. But to make sure that we don't define that however we want, Paul takes what we're going to deal with this week and next week, as I said, to talk about. This week he's talking about what we need to change from, and next week what the results should be. Uh, and what we need to change from is obviously the flesh. Okay, good. That's clear. We can move on. Uh, no, of course not. This passage shows us, and this is what we're going to talk about this morning, what the flesh is, what the flesh does, and what the answer is, okay? What it is, what it does, and what the answer is. So let's start with what it is. Uh, we see first it's the enemy of the spirit. Look at verse 17. Paul says, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. I know the ESV mixes that up a little bit. For these are opposed to one another, okay? Now stop there. So Paul is doing what he's done over and over and over again in this book that frustrates some of us, but it's just what he does. He sets up these polarities. It's in either or. He's constantly doing this. He does the both and in other places. But here, it's always this either or. And, and if you'll notice that in most of your translations, the word spirit is capitalized. And you see, that's important. Because most of us, especially in the Western world, we are all part of Western culture, um, have been influenced by this thing uh, that philosophically is called dualism. Okay, now let me explain. Dualism is the idea that there are kind of these, 
these dualities in all of life that are warring against each other, good and bad. Um, we tend to think, especially in Christianized versions, that, that physicality and spirituality are opposed to one another, right? Uh, and, and it's kind of endemic to the Western world. And, and what, it, what it would tell us in many cases is that there's this, like, this gulf between our body and our spirit, between faith and reason, between all of these dualisms, and, and that therefore, because of that, they, they don't have much connection to one another. And we are so caught up in this. I mean, think about it. In our culture now, we have gotten to the point where we think that what you are physically is not what is true of you. What is true of you is what you feel, right? That's a duality. That's dualism. We have this idea that our bodies may, in fact, betray what is real. They're not true indicators. And so that means that when we come with that kind of cultural baggage, we are tempted to think that what Paul means is that we have the spirit and the flesh, and they're going against each other, and it's the same kind of thing. Flesh bad, spirit good. There's these good and bad side, but that's not what he means when he talks about flesh and spirit. When Paul talks about the spirit, he's talking about the spirit of God. Okay. Now, if you're not a Christian, um, just, just listen in for a second. But as, as Christians, the Bible teaches us that the Spirit of God is the third person of the Trinity. This is that, if you uh, grew up in church, this is that math problem that you could never balance that never seemed to work out. But it's more than math. Okay? That God is three persons in one God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one in essence. Okay? Three who's in one what. Okay? They're all equally God. All the persons are equally God, and all are one in essence. And Paul is saying that the flesh is opposed to God's spirit. Now, does that mean that God hates our bodies? No. Okay? No. God made our bodies. He doesn't hate our bodies. He's not against our bodies. It's not like he made bodies, and then we messed it up, and he's like, well, we'll cancel that out. You can go have uh, wings and a harp in the clouds. Like, no, no, no. We were, we were made for being body and soul together, and we will be in the new creation. Flesh does not mean physicality. Spirit has to do with the Spirit of God. Flesh, in Paul's language, over and over and over again, has to do with a state of being. And that state of being, when he talks about that, what he means is this state of being that now kind of characterizes all of humanity, that we are all now, by nature, um, independent of God and seeking independence from God. Okay, It is a technical term. When Paul says flesh, it's a technical term for the broken nature of humanity. Okay, more on that in a second. So, think with me. If we think that there is something opposed to God's spirit, whether you're Christian or not, okay, this is probably true if you heard this, and something is opposed to God's spirit, then it probably means that thing's negative, right? And that would make sense. And that word we translate oppose, it's so kind. I love how sometimes our English translations is trying to make everything a little more nice. The word is hostile. Opposed can give you the sense that it's kind of like, I mean, not really four anchovies on pizza. But to be hostile towards it means I'm going into the pizza joint and I'm throwing all the anchovies out. They're evil and I'm going to destroy them. Like hostility is about activeness. It's about activity. The flesh is an enemy of God. And that makes sense. The flesh is another way of talking about wanting independence from God. Of course those two would be hostile to one another, right? Now, that's all well and good. I mean, we're okay with this notion. There are opposing powers in the world, right? We get that. That's dualism. I said that. We all get that. 
And we can be fooled into thinking that we're kind of pulled this way and that between them, but Paul will have none of it. Look down at verse 17. He says, these two are opposed or hostile to one another so that you do not do that which you wish. Now, this phrase is a little confusing. It can be interpreted in several different ways. Scholars will interpret in several ways, but at root, all of them are going to say the same thing. The key in this is that the, what the conflict that is going on is not external, it's internal. It's not something separate from you. Oh, well, the, the culture's pulling me this way. Now, that, that, okay, that is not necessarily untrue, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. When he's talking about flesh and spirit, he's talking about something that's going on in us. It's an internal war. The flesh is part of us. And the, 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 Bible, the story of the Bible reflects this, right? Because we were, we were made in the beginning to be in relationship with God, to be with him, to be in dependent relationship with him. But that we came to believe that lie, that God is not for us, that he, he, he's not to be trusted, that we can't really rely on him for anything. And that when we did that, we turned away from him. We betrayed him when we came to believe that. We thought, now I can be independent of him and rely on myself. Right? We betrayed God. And that's what sin is. Sin is not breaking rules. It's breaking a relationship. Okay? It's, it's, it's breaking a heart, not a code. And when we did, humanity became guilty for betraying God, but we were also changed. The, 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 the Protestant reformers would say that what happened was our natures kind of bent in on ourselves. We were made to be outward focusing, and now we just focused in on looking out for number one. That we, and and the, way, the way I think we would put it here is that you don't have to be convinced of the lie anymore. That was true in the garden, not true anymore. You don't have to convince anyone that God might not have their best in mind, do you? I don't have to convince you. You don't have to convince me. It kind of is an assumption. It's harder to convince someone that God actually cares for them. That is what Paul calls the flesh, right? There's this great example of this. Um, if you, you remember, remember um, there was a journalist by the name of Mike Wallace. I think he, he died either this year or a couple of years ago. Um, but Mike did this uh, great interview uh, about a survivor of Auschwitz who was part of the... Um, about Eichmann's, he was, he was part of Eichmann's trial, like Adolf Eichmann, grand architect of, of the, the massacre of so many Jewish people. And his, his name was um, Yahiel Diener. And, and he survived the Holocaust. He was a witness at Nuremberg. And there's this clip from 1961, you can still YouTube it, uh, where um, he's sitting in the, in the booth, the witness booth, and Eichmann is let in. And he sees Eichmann and he starts wailing and he literally passes out on the floor. And uh, Mike Wallace is asking him about that, and, and what he says is not that um, he was overcome with trauma and these memories of all these things that flashed back into his mind. He said that what, what he was overcome with was the sense that this was not a God, this was a man, just like him. And his statement is just, it's, it's so telling, it so exemplifies what Paul is saying. He's like, he said, I am Eichmann, that I could have done that, that what was, what was in him is in me. Eichmann is me, he said. And that's what the flesh is. It's this nature that's not just aloof to God, but hostile towards God's spirit. And it's us. So let me be clear. Paul's argument, the argument of the Bible as a whole, is that this is who we are by nature. We're not led into this. We don't become this. We're born this. And it's not just true of a few of us who can't seem to just overcome. It's true of all of us. Every one of us. By nature, we are hostile towards God. So that's what the flesh is. So now what does it do? 
This might surprise you. First and foremost, it over-desires. Look at the first two verses. Paul says, you're going to walk by the Spirit. You will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, if you grew up in a, in a, uh, with the King James Version, you, maybe you're familiar with this passage because it says it, it uses the word lusts, right? The lusts of the flesh. And that, uh, we, we don't use that so much anymore because, again, you put lusts and flesh together and all we think about is sex. And so it just gets, it, it, it hurts the, the interpretation. But here's why that word actually might help. Because the word that, that Paul uses in the original, and uh, if, you didn't, if you weren't familiar, like the, the New Testament was originally written in Greek, not in the King's English. Uh, so it, it was written in Greek, and the word that he uses isn't just for desire. It means an over-desire. Right? It means an over-desire, which is why uh, the old translations say, Lust. And, and you see, this gets at a common misconception of Christianity. Because many people think Christians believe things like, like sex and money and power and all this stuff, that they're bad. Not at all. No. No, no. We don't think that. God created sex. He thinks it's great. Right? God has all power. It's a good thing. Right? The, the scripture says he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, which is a really weird statement. But to the people at the time, it means he's got all the money in the world. He's got everything. So obviously these things aren't, aren't bad. It's not that they're wrong. It's not even that desire for them are, is wrong. What this is getting at is that it is an over-desire for them that is wrong. Here's what I mean. Remember I said a few seconds ago that, that the Bible says that we're made for God. We're made for a dependent relationship on him. But now since we're stuck in our independence, here's the thing. Just like Stephen said with a fish. Fish wants to get up and go on land. Can't do it. He may want to breathe air. He can't do it. We may want to be independent, can't do it. We're going to be dependent on something. Something has to have that place. We are made for that. And since sin has entered the world, since we've kind of been broken, we want to depend on anything but him. We take good things, things that God made that were good, and we make them God things. We take things that were supposed to be good in our lives, and we make them ultimate Right? Sexual desire is not wrong, but thinking that I can't be human unless I express my sexuality, or sexual desire in a way that is, isn't according to where God says this is supposed to happen, and thinking I must do this or I, I'm going to be dead, it's an over-desire. It's placing your flourishing in the basket of your sexuality. A desire for peace or for financial stability, it's not, it's not wrong. We were made for provision. Right? We were made for that. But thinking that unless I have enough money, I will be destroyed. I, I will not be taken care of. I have to pursue it at all costs. Over-desire. Right? The flesh lusts. It says I must have these things. And Paul says the flesh does this because it is hostile towards God. It means that it's, it's ravenously looking for anything that it can depend on besides God, anything that can fulfill us besides him, anything, whether that's reputation or morality or sex or power or money or relationships or love and blah, 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 anything except him. See, Paul is getting to the heart of our problem and he's doing it before he gets to the behaviors. The heart of the problem is not behavior, it's not desire, it's inordinate desires. It's not our behavior, it's the reasons for our behavior, first and foremost. What the flesh ultimately does is it exchanges things for God. God cannot be trusted. He cannot be depended on. 
cannot be counted on, cannot be our all, and so we hunger for anything but, but him. So the problem's motivational. It's like, it's heart deep. It's what Jesus meant when he said that out of the heart comes all these bad things. But those things end up in actions, right? And that brings us to the works of the flesh. Look down at verses 19 to 21. Now, as I get to these, I want to highlight a couple things. First, Paul calls these the works of the flesh. It's very important. He says the works of the flesh are obvious or evident. Okay, this is important. These are not things that happen to us for which we are not responsible. These are not things that kind of are inevitable. These are things we do. These are deeds, works, okay? They're things we do. Secondly, Paul says they're evident, which means they're, they're, um, they're visible. It's obvious, okay? The import, this is important, so listen close. These things do not create the flesh, okay? I've got to keep coming back to this. I'm going to say it. You're going to get tired of me saying it, but by then, I hope all of us, including myself, might be able to get this. These behaviors do not make the flesh. The flesh makes the behaviors. We sin because we're sinners. We don't become sinners because we sin. It's just who we are and it's what we do. These things are the obvious outworkings of the flesh. Why? Because these things show that we don't want God. We don't want what he says or what he is like. We want what we want. All right, so saying that, Paul gives us 15 terms. Whew. Times. All right, 15 terms. They break up into four broad categories. Okay? The first of them, category is sexual. And I know some of us are like, I knew it. Is the next one financial? And now I can just walk out. Now all of my, my fears about church have been realized. Okay? Look, yes, he's going to start with this. How do I say this? Our culture seems to think, and many of us believe this, that Christianity and the Bible um, don't think much of sex. They think very little of it. And I don't just mean not thinking much about it. I mean we think very little of it. That's not true. The Bible actually thinks of sex far more, thinks of it far loftier than our culture does. Our culture is made at the center of everything, and yet it is still lower than the way the Bible would put it. The Bible is clear that sex is a big deal. It's this amazing, wondrous mystery. It does something that, that our culture would never anticipate. Right? Paul talks about it in a different category in, in, in a letter he wrote to the Corinthian church. It does something. It affects a union between two people that God designed to be the epitome. Perhaps even like a a sign of a covenanted relationship between a man and a woman. It is a time in which we, it's like we return to the garden where we are naked and unashamed and have mutual delight. It, is, it affects union. It is amazing. It is not simply an animal instinct. We think it is far loftier. Sexual sin isn't different because of what it does before God, but because of the effects that it has in the lives of those involved. That's why God talks about sexual sin so much. Okay? And so Paul gives us three words here. Sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. Okay? Now, the first, sexual immorality. Oof, lots of stuff written on this um, today because everyone's trying to get out of what it actually means. 
Um, sexual immorality is, is actually rather clear in both the Old Testament and the New Testament in the way it's used. The way it's used is any kind of sexual expression outside of a covenanted relationship between a husband and wife, a man and a woman. That's it. Everything else falls into that category. Everything. Everything. Okay, now look, I, I know that's not popular. I'm not telling you my interpretation of what the Bible says. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. You, you don't have to believe it. I'm just telling you what it says, okay? Now the second, impurity. What does that mean? Um, it, it has to do with, especially in Judaism of the time, it has to do with what, what you'd call sexuality outside of, um, maybe better would be unnatural sexual practices and relationships totally loaded term. We don't have time to go into it a ton. Come up to me and talk. We'll talk about it afterwards because um, we got so many more to go into. But basically it means relationships that are against nature, against what would be the norm scripturally. Okay. The third, sensuality, means uncontrolled sexuality. It's like a sexual addiction. Like just can't get enough, whether we're talking about sexual addiction with others or just something you express yourself. Paul is saying sexuality outside of God's design is an obvious work of independence. These works are of the flesh, hostile to God. Okay? Clear? Again, not telling you you have to believe this necessarily. If you don't believe it, that's fine. You can come talk about it. But I'm just saying this is what it says. Okay? The second group, religious categories, idolatry and witchcraft or sorcery. And I know most of you were like, oh, I'm good there. I'm fine. Last time I did a spell was when I was eight, five, eight, eight years old. No big deal. Um, literally, what this means, idolatry and sorcery, is providing a substitute for God and trying to control it. You know what that's what magic is in the ancient world? It's not that different from what we think today, but we don't do it with hocus pocus. It's trying to get God to do what you want, binding him, in fact, to do what you want. Hmm. Maybe some of us do practice sorcery. Like when we as Christians go, you know what? I've got this really important thing I want God to do for me, so I'm going to make sure that I have my quiet time every day this week so that he has to. That's sorcery. Sorry. Idolatry is the substitution of anything for God. We all do that, okay? So again, either trying to fake or control the work of the Spirit, this is what these things are, okay? So that's religious categories. The third is communal, okay? These communal things. Uh, the first four are dealing with attitudes, the, and the, the last three are dealing with situations those produce. And this group is important because Paul sees things like rival factions, which the church is awesome at, as evidence of the flesh. When we fall into our camps, right, whatever those camps are, denominational, theological, a theologian, a particular branch of our theological truth. I mean, we could be nuts about this. Paul says, when you create a faction, that is an obvious work of the flesh. Right? Why? Because sin is a dividing principle. Like, we're made to be a diverse but unified people. But sin divides us. It divides us racially. It divides us sociopolitically. It divides us socioeconomically. It divides us um, ideologically. It divides us by gender because we all just go, I'm better than you. Everything is, I'm better than you. Everything is. And we just think, well, I'm obviously better, right? And so we, we, we're in these factions. And the last, category, the last category deals with substances, okay? Drunkenness and orgies. Okay, now, um, that, that last word does not necessarily mean sexual, 
It's talking about wild, uncontrolled parties. Okay? Parties that are out of control. Do a lot of those end up in a sexual circumstance? They can, but that's not what it's talking about. Crazy party is basically what it's talking about. So let me be clear on, on these. Drunkenness is not drinking. It is drunkenness. However, drunkenness does not mean getting drunk. Drunkenness does not mean getting sloppy. And I need, I need to be clear on this. I need to be clear on this because, and listen, I'm not, I, I, I need to hear this as much as anybody else, but there's something about the contemporary reform tradition that I don't know if we're rebelling against our parents, our grandparents, whatever. Drunkenness seems to be one that we are willing to tolerate now a lot more than we ever have. Drunkenness means a life controlled by alcohol. Your life can be controlled by alcohol because you're drunk all the time or because you just can't deal with life without a drink, even if you never get drunk. Right? The issue is over-desire. Can I deal with my life, my emotions, my expectations without a substance or a pleasure-creating behavior? Okay? So let me, before we close on this, in these categories, you're like, Rick, you could have said a lot more. I know, but I don't have time. So before, before I move on, this is, a, is not a comprehensive list. Paul is not giving us every possible work of the flesh. He's just throwing out a representative list. But it is a true list. It's not as if, it's not comprehensive. There are other things, but it has to at least include these things. Okay? So it's part of that. We have to understand that first and foremost. And I know that unnerves some of us. This is saying that some things are wrong always. Always. And we don't like that. But let me challenge you with something. If you're here this morning and either you're not a Christian or you're a Christian and you just don't like that, let me challenge you with this. If, if when you read the Bible or when you approach God, you see the things you like and you accept them and you see the things you don't like and don't accept them, you're not following God. You're following you. Okay? If your God never challenges you, your God is you. If your God never challenges you, your God is you. Every relationship has challenge to it. Every relationship, whether it's relationship with your, ki- man, with your kids, yeah, that's challenging, and they, they point out all the stuff you do wrong, you're like, ah, go away. Or, or your spouse or your coworkers, every relationship holds a mirror up to you and goes, yeah, yeah, here's some things, you, nah, it's not okay. If that doesn't happen with God, then you are looking in a mirror at you all the time. If it doesn't challenge you, it's not a real relationship. It's a farce, okay? All right, so that's what it is and what it does. So what's the answer? Because the flesh is part of us. It's hostile to God, and it does things that are obvious, and that leads to two very distinct promises. The first one I want to look at is in verse 21. Paul says, I warned you before that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, now, that phrase, kingdom of God, is a technical term that's used in the Bible um, that deals with um, what life is going to be like when, when God comes to make all things new again um, and, and, and kind of how that's already playing out in the world, okay? So Paul is saying that those who do such things are not going to get there. Now, some of us, including myself, would be like, um, okay, but where's that grace thing, right? You have to understand that when he says do such things, we can't see it because it's in the original, it's not here, and this is one of those places where it actually does matter a lot. It means to continually do it. It means a life characterized by these things. If your life is characterized by these things, okay, that is something 
different, right? And I know you're thinking, Rick, I thought you said I'm, I'm not saved by what I do or don't do, but here it's saying that by doing these things is going to disqualify, disqualify me. Well, yeah and no, but look how Paul talks about this. This list is the obvious works of the flesh. It's the obvious works of independence, okay? What is the problem? The problem is the flesh, The flesh is what's hostile to God. The issue is not behavior. It's the well from which the behavior springs. And look, I can look at you, and I can't see the flesh. I can't. I mean, I know because I believe the Bible. I know it's there, but I can't see it. But what I can see are the behaviors that come from it. And go, oh, flesh. Look at that. I don't see it in me, of course. Other people see it in me. I don't, right? But but it's, I can see the behaviors, the works of the flesh are visible. Paul says they're evident since the flesh is hostile to the spirit. If you're, in other words, Paul says if your life is characterized by these things, not it happens like every once in a while, I'm saying characterized. Paul says, I see the flesh. Do these things create the flesh? No, they're evidence of it. I cannot say this enough. Our behavior is simply a symptom of the problem. If you don't think you have a problem with your sexuality, first off, you're wrong. We all do, Okay. But divisions and factionalism kind of follow you around. Like you can't hold a relationship because eventually everyone just doesn't like being around you. You don't know why. I don't get it. I mean, I have strong opinions, but who doesn't? Right? So you're like, I mean, my sexuality is fine, but I, I don't know why everyone has such problems with me. Or you can't just, you can't deal with life without a couple of beers. Paul says that is evidence of the flesh. So let me be clear on something. I am not saying that if these things characterize your life, you cannot possibly be a Christian. I would never say that. What I'd say is, if these things characterize your life, you should maybe question. That's all. Raise the question. Hmm. My life is characterized by things that are hostile to God. Hmm. That's troublesome. Maybe I need to do something about that. Maybe I need to look into that. So what's the answer? Well, it isn't the law. (laughs) That's what Paul means in verse 18. He's like, the flesh is about trying to get life on your own independently. Being under the law is too, right? Both are trusting yourself. Paul says the answer is to walk by the Spirit. Okay, clear. All right, we're good. No problem. All right, so uh, of course not. This is huge. Listen close. Verse 17 says the flesh over-desires against the Spirit. Now, the ESV says the Spirit desires against the flesh. It's actually not what it says in the original. It says the Spirit against the flesh. It doesn't use the same word. He doesn't use that same over-desire word. Why? Because the Spirit can't over-desire. It says the Spirit against the flesh. Why? The Spirit cannot have an inordinate desire. What the Spirit desires all throughout the New Testament is Jesus. So what does it mean to walk by the Spirit? Why is there a promise that if you walk by the Spirit, there's no chance you're going to carry on the lust of the flesh? Because walking by the Spirit means you're going to be desiring Jesus. It means you're going to be desiring Him. He's the one that we're made for. He's the one that changes our very nature so that we aren't hostile to God anymore. That our lives aren't characterized by that anymore. He's the one who reconciles us to God by His perfect life, His substitutionary death, and His justifying resurrection. And so that brings us to the topic of ordered desires. I love the fact Stephen used that term. We didn't even talk about that, by the way. So it's just, maybe the Spirit is involved here. This is great. Here's the reality. The grace of God to you is free. It is absolutely free. 
but it will not leave you unchanged. If you come in this place, I need to tell you right now, it is okay to not be okay. It is okay to come in here and go, I'm not okay. But it is not okay to stay that way. Okay? It is okay to come in here and be like, I'm hanging on my fingernails. That's why we come here. But it's not okay to think that you're more spiritual because you're always hanging on by your fingernails. It's not okay to go, my life's a train wreck. My life's a train wreck. The Spirit of God can't do anything about it. It's not okay to stay that way. It calls us to turn. The grace of God calls us to turn because we've, we've all been given. We've all been given so much more than these things can give us. But here's the kicker. It does not call us to get rid of our desires. It calls us to reorder them, right? C.S. Lewis gave that, fa- that famous kind of quote in his sermon on the weight of glory that we are, the problem with us is that we are far too easily pleased, right? We are far too easily pleased. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, he says. We are like children playing with mud pies because we don't understand what a holiday at sea could even be like. We are far too easily pleased, he says. And that's what, it, that's what this means. It's like going to the beach and watching everyone hanging on their phones the entire time. Like, what are you doing? What he means is this. What is it that we desire when we pursue... This is important, so listen, check back in if you can. What is it that we're desiring when we pursue sexuality outside of marriage? Is it pleasure? Probably. I mean, yes. But my guess would be there's more to it. That Is it control, power? Is it escape? Like, I just can't deal with life. This helps me check out for a little bit. The problem is not our desire for those things. The problem is where we are seeking to fill the desire. It's that we've misunderstood where the desires come from. What we really want in those moments is something that can only be found in God. We, in the moment where we're like, I feel my life is out of control and I need to do something to get it into control. What we want is to be able to trust in the one who has control over our life. Instead, we run to these little things that make us feel like we get it, but the problem, you know the problem is. You know what the problem is? You go and you do that, and then what? It goes away. It fades, and then you're left most of the time feeling worse than you did before. You know, it's like, it's like the classic line that most drinkers drink because they're trying to learn what it feels like to not drink. Like, that that's ends up what we end up doing. You want acceptance. You find it in the arms of another or in a picture on the internet. And then what? It goes away. We don't say no to drunkenness because the desire for fun is bad or a good feeling is bad. It's that our vision of how that that can be satisfied is far too weak. But when we've ordered our desires rightly, when we find that acceptance and the unfading love of God for us in Jesus, it isn't that, that sexuality or all these things become superfluous. They just get marginalized. They go, they go from being ultimate things and they get to return to just being good. They can go, they, they, they go out of that place where if we can't have them, we're destroyed and they go back to a gift that we can just give thanks for. And it goes to where it was meant to be, lined up under a dependent relationship with God where he tells us what we were made for, how we will flourish and can be the fulfillment of our greatest desires. You see, don't you see, like, 
when you put your faith in Jesus, it's not that you get rid of all your desires. That's Buddhism. That's not Christianity. Instead, it's understanding that our desires are meant to find their fulfillment in a reconciled relationship with God. Don't settle for less. Come to the one that you were made for. Walk by the Spirit. And it's not that you'll go, oh, those things, you know, they don't tempt me anymore. You'll go, well, doing that's nowhere near enough. What I need is way more than sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, drunkenness, envy, sorcery, idolatry. Any of those things can give me. Because God has given me everything in Jesus. Would you pray with me? Lord, have mercy on us. Have mercy on me. I feel like uh, this week is probably more for me than anyone else in this room. And so I, I pray that you would work in all of us not to limit our desires, but instead that you would open our eyes to the holiday at sea. That the mud pies would just be like, what am I doing? There's all this available to me and I'm here playing in the mud. Help us, Lord, for we are far too easily pleased. Reorient us. Reorient our desires. Reorient our loves to be lined up under you, Jesus, the one that we were made for. We ask in your name. Amen.